So uh, welcome both of you to the podcast. I'm really excited to, to get this going. So we've got Joe Crowley from 1927, executive producer there, and Rosie Clark, producer at Riptides and cast in Doncaster. Um, and I believe you two have met and worked together before, which is really um, great to have you both on. I want to start by asking what we ask all of our guests on this podcast. It's an impossible task. It's to give us your life story and we're going to give one minute each for this. Um, so Rose, if you want to start, that'd be great. Okay. Good luck. Thank you. I'm going to start my timer. Okay. So from Leeds, went to Leeds University, had a great time. The course was bollocks, but I learned other stuff. Um, and then decided that if I was going to do it, I should probably go down to London. So I moved down, did an MA at Birkbeck, which was brilliant because it was an easy university. So you could work and get um, jobs and sort of like experience during the day and then do your studies at night. And then I was just very lucky. I did the stage one apprenticeship scheme, which was amazing. Um, and then from there, got um, through the placements that they do, got some jobs with like headlong and places like that. Uh, I met Joe when I did some work at the Young Vic. Um, I worked there when they were doing the transfer of view from the bridge, and Joe and 1927 were an associate there. So I kept on sort of popping in and bugging her and being like, "You're really cool, and I want to work with you, Canna." And uh, she, they were looking for an assistant producer because they were transferring Golem, which was really cool. Um, so did that. Lots of jobs in London. Decided I had enough of London. Moved back up to Leeds and uh, wanted to work in talent development. So do that now. Yeah. <laughs> great fantastic joe wow that's a hard act to follow did you do that in a minute my god minute. okay okay i'm gonna start my timer let's see um okay so i'm really old uh, so i feel like i have to cast my mind back uh i am from london and i went to study theatre studies at Scarborough, in Scarborough, back in the day when there was a university there as part of York, uh, studied theatre studies, independent work, mostly artist-led practice, weird, wonky, strange course, set me on the course of where I was going, um, had to move back to London because uh, I had no money and nowhere to stay, so I could move back in with my parents, live share a room with my sister, uh, spent a year trying to get into theatre, so worked at um, as an intern at the Gate Theatre, worked at the Royal Court as an usher in, in front of house um, while I was also working in the Amsterdam Canteen, uh, as you do, uh, managed to persuade the, young, the, uh, sorry, the Royal Court to give me a job, which I did take on working in the literary department. Um, and doing that made me realise I didn't want to work in play with plays. It made me realise I wanted to work with theatre in artist-led practice with theatre companies so I went to work at BAC for two years uh, as their administrator and then accidentally fell into producing and have been producing for the last 18 years working with companies that's me <laughs> awesome well that's uh, me in a minute that's not that's quite a shortened version and I've missed 18 years worth of stuff but there we go there we go we'll get into the all that stuff um Absolutely. So, um, Joe, maybe we can start with you. Um, let's go back to that time that you said you were interning at the Gate Theatre, working at ASDA. Could you paint us a picture in terms of like what that was actually like to to be splitting your time, to be wanting to do the theatre, but not being like, how, how was that for you? It was, it was 
pretty 24-7, if I'm honest. Um, I mean, I should say when I was doing that, I was also applying for jobs, just trying to get a job in theatre. So I think I had something crazy like 70 interviews before I got a job. Um, so, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I think that's the big thing is I knew I wanted to work at the time in arts management. Producing wasn't really a thing back in the day um, or back in my day. So it was hard juggling, like, you know, um, trying to get some experience working at the gate as an intern, um, but also really enjoying working every single evening at the Royal Court as in the bar originally, then as a GT manager, really making it clear to the Royal Court that I wanted to kind of work in theatre. So they kept giving me opportunities to do like intern, not interns, to do um, kind of covers. So I would do various uh, assistant with the artistic director or the general manager of the Young People's, Young Writers Programme. Um, and then the ASDA job was keeping me afloat financially. And it was really glamorous because I was working in the ASDA canteen. Um, but I actually, after eight months, was able to leave uh, and the Royal Court gave me enough work to kind of piece together a bit of enough to live on and to be able to move out of my parents' house, which was nice. So that was my next question, whether you were living at home or not. I was for the first eight months. And actually, really, I'm so I really am quite old um, that I was lucky to have a free university education. So I kind of really recognise how massively privileged I was to have had free university education, only have had to have had two very tiny loans, um, but still really needing to have lived at my parents while I was doing all of those jobs. Um, yeah. And I think that's a big thing for emerging, especially emerging artists, no matter if you think you want to go into directing or producing or designing, whatever it is, to not know where you are going to, where you're aiming for. So those 70 applications, were they completely random? Were they anything you could see yourself doing like what was your tactics there like how are you how are you they doing were, yeah they were a bit random they tended to be like oh there's an ad assistant administrator or there's an assistant production assistant or there's a marketing assistant or it's a front of house manager so it's things that I kind of thought actually were entry level that I could do um but I didn't really know which direction I was going in. and actually I think it took me until I was in the literary office at the Royal Court working with a literary manager and Fantic Assembly were rehearsing downstairs doing a really loud get in and everyone in the literary office was like what the hell is that noise and I was like Frantic Assembly it was like one of Frantic Assembly's first shows and they were like who and I suddenly went I'm in the wrong place I want to be working on that show downstairs <laughs> I don't want to be looking at these scripts because I get what that thing downstairs is I don't get what this script is that's super interesting what about you Rosie what um what about your kind of disenfranchised uni life out straight out of uni what what were you thinking in terms of like a, I guess a career path or like how are you thinking about things I think it was in my third year at uni when we did the National Student Drama Festival in Scarborough and I was like stage managing a show that um we weren't a society, it was a sort of student theatre company and we'd got a place or the director of the show had got a place in the festival. And I, I was sort of stage managing it as that, that was the only sort of term that we understood. And when I was at the festival, and it, it was a brilliant experience, but the focus was on the directors or the actors and not as much as light shone on the backstage and the sort of um, the other roles involved. And it was somebody at the festival and I can't remember who, but they asked me what 
I was doing and we 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 did our show in like a converted sports hall and they it might have been I think we were assigned at a producer to sort of watch over us as a company and they basically and I said oh I'm the stage manager of the show and they were like no you're you're producing it and I was like <laughs> what you are um, and it was just a phrase that I hadn't really under, like heard before didn't really know what it meant um and then I sort of started asking around at the festival and started doing a bit of um I knew I didn't want to be on stage and I knew I didn't want direct work and I knew I wanted to but I knew I wanted to be involved in the decision making and the formation of, of people's work and I loved the logistics and the sort of creative problem solving that I've been doing um and yeah when I started asking around about what this thing called producing meant it sort of clicked um I don't think I quite had that moment that Joe had the sort of I wish I'd had that maybe a little bit earlier because I then started working in new writing and new work and it wasn't always text-based but a lot of the artists and the sort of creators I was meeting when I moved down to London to do VMA were that way inclined. So um, I sort of realised that if I was going to do this, I had to sort of split it. So I always had a day job and, it, and I was very lucky in that that was the majority in theatre. But then I wasn't totally satisfied by that. And a lot of that was administrative based when you're sort of entry level, which is great and it builds up your skills, but there's not as much creative excitement going on so I would always do and that's what's so great about London or at least it was sort of 10 years ago or so when I was starting out you could do fringe shows for nothing on sort of you could go and do something in Angel or something down at um uh in sort of Battersea you could you could sort of just put your show on and um yeah I just had the best time um and I think um I think it was probably when I started I'm trying to think what I did before the Young Vic. My mind's gone blank, but like headlong, obviously text based, and they. I, I knew I wanted to tour. I knew coming from Leeds, it was so vital for me as a sort of young person interested in theatre and the arts that work came to us and that we could experience. I remember seeing like Knee High for the first time, and it just blew my little mind. Um, and I knew I wanted to be involved in touring work, and I knew I wanted to be involved in new work. Um, and it was through working with companies like 1927 of going okay so we don't have to be constrained by a text or it doesn't have to be a reimagining of an existing piece of work um and, and also you know seeing how well you guys were doing but also how hard because at that point you weren't an MPO but you were managing to do this huge transfer you had this associate gig at the Young Vic one of the most exciting venues in London um and yeah it was just totally inspiring of going it doesn't have to fit this box it can be independent and different and yeah it was really exciting and I also was aware that it wasn't always happening in London as well like you know the majority of what you do is outside of the capital um so then I had a sudden pull to go back up north and sort of you know I, I was quite I'd waxed lyrical quite a bit about touring work and I was like well I feel like a bit of a I'm not practicing what I preach I'm, I've been in London now for sort of four years and I need to take what I've learned and, and go out and figure out how it works outside of this sort of weird bubble does that answer the question I feel like yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> let's talk about 1927 then because you touched on it there Rosie um, for those living under a rock Joe, what is 1927 and what do you what do you do so we are a very, very tiny company. Um, we create theatre or live performance. We create theatre that is a synchronised combination of live performance, 
live music and handcrafted stop frame projected animation. So everything we do is a, is a hybrid of the digital and the live. Um, and we work in theatre and opera. So we created shows from kind of 50 seats to 3000 seat auditoriums um, and do some other stuff on the side. But yeah, it's a kind of, in, it's a hybrid of the live and the digital, the animated and the real. And, and from what I've, from what I know about the company, a key phrase that keeps coming up is artist-led, artist-led ensemble. And so how is that important to you? And, and, what, and what does that mean for people it, who don't know? Yeah, it's a really, and it's an interesting one. And I, it's interesting that sometimes when I talk about it or hear other people talk about it and they're questioning it, they, they kind of question, well, an artist is a director of a building is artist-led. And I think what's interesting is about the relationship when there's kind of co-creators involved. So at the heart of 1927 sits a kind of creative ensemble that have worked across everything we've ever made. So Suzanne is a writer and a director. Paul is an animator and filmmaker. Suzanne, uh, Esme is a designer and a performer and an actress. Lily is a composer and an actress. And, and that collection of artists have collaboratively co-created and co-led all of the work we've ever created. And I think when we talk about artist-led, that is the team plus me, plus a part-time general manager. There is no one else that works with us. So every decision we make is made by that, the collective of artists. There is not a staff team as such. Um, I mean, there is, but it is the artists and we're leading everything we do. Does that make sense? I mean, it's an, in, I, I get why people kind of go, what do you mean by artists? Like, I think I'm, I use it in the context of kind of like ensemble, collaborative, co-created work. Um, that perhaps is less about commissioning external outside artists to come in and create something for us, if that makes sense. Is it also yeah, about the structure? Might. Sorry, is it, is, it, is it, it's not top down, it's, it's more d decisions are shared amongst a company yeah. of people. Yeah, they're shared um, and not necessarily in a kind of like Marxist kind of way, but actually much more in a really natural organic way that's emerged that we know what each other's strengths are. Um, and there's absolute inherent trust. So there's trust for somebody to go off and have a conversation and for something to come together. Um, and there's just a real distinct understanding of how, what, what role we each play in the creation and distribution of everything we do. And I don't mean distribution in terms of that, oh, let's go and tour and exploit this. I mean, in terms of the dissemination of whatever the creative idea takes us in. It also really importantly, I think, in terms of being artist-led means that we can be quite fleet of foot um, and flexible and adaptable, usually. Um, and then I guess sometimes the opposite, because we're so focused on what we do and how we do it, that that might mean to some outsiders that, well, why aren't, they, why aren't you doing the other things? Like, because that's not what we do. And I think, sorry, just continuing one more thing, I guess, the other thing about being artist, art, how I think about artist-led is also about process-led work. So it's work that I would say, some people go, it's devised. And I'm like, no, no, it's not, it's made work. So it's work that is co-created and co-authored through a process that's evolved over time amongst a collective of artists who regularly work, or regularly or exclusively work together. Yeah, which makes it just totally unique as well. I remember just sitting in the office with you and just being, I've never seen, that sort of yeah inherent trust between you as a you guys as a company to um 
for you to lead it to, yeah it was it it was where it sort of clicked because I've worked at Cheap by Jowl and they are sort of an ensemble company but it's ensemble in that sense of they have a large cast and they're all but that's a totally different uh use of the word like with you guys it was so collaborative and you know you'd grown up together as artists as well which you could just you know sometimes you were finishing each of the sentences you knew what each other was thinking and it just yeah it just made it totally sort of unique um and I think also, what Rosie also means is we're basically a bit like siblings and we treat each other like siblings sometimes in a good way. Yeah, in the best way, because you can have those really honest conversations <laughs> and, and you know that you could say something that's quite harsh or quite honest, but you're not going to upset or offend because you've been through so much together. Um, it's, yeah, no, it was, uh, yeah, I was just in awe. And I swear I sat every night and watched Gollum every night in that theatre when it was at Trap and I brought a new person every night to like <laughs> you just sit down and watch you just wait <laughs> so, so talking about this working relationship you have what when you're making a show what is the most important thing when you're making that piece of work taking the time Yeah, taking time, if I'm honest, and not rushing. Um, and how do you have that conversation with producers and touring venues? Because it's so important. And I think the whole structure around making you work is rushed. We put, you know, this formula and this model exists. And it's like, oh, you have a bit of R&D and maybe four weeks to rehearse. And actually what happens is at the end of it, a lot of work just doesn't quite feel completed. It feels rushed. I think, I think a really key thing us with 1927 um is that we that we, the reason why i said time is that we did take our time from the very beginning well we made a first show flukely it not flukely but it, it was made in the way it was made but from the second show onwards at the point of which we got some attention from programmers and funders or whoever presenters or whatever else um is that we didn't fit into the model of let's apply for some funding to do some r d and inform x y and z we went in the opposite direction and kind of went let's take the time to develop this properly but also because our first show was we were lucky that our first show was really successful so it toured like really far and wide across the globe and across the UK for a good two years so I think we were lucky that we were able to prove from the offset that we made shows with legs and so like we weren't making a show for it to have a short life we we're making a show for it to exist for years and years and to reach as many audiences as possible in as many different places or contexts and I think once you've proven that you can do that and you show the weight and you explain that's because we've taken the time or like the thing that I always say on it's I get I hate myself for saying and I can't believe I'm going to say on a podcast which is like how many albums are Radiohead made like they took their time to make the few albums they've made why do we rush theatre why don't we just think that the best novelist in the world might write three extraordinary novels to be considered prolific um and the best bands in the world might have a couple of albums so theatre I think theatre should be made should be thought of in a similar way take our time if we only make five shows across 25 years if that show reaches a big audience then that's cool that's a... our persuasion to people yeah I think there's a theme emerging here of kind of breaking the mold and defying convention which I which I'm finding really interesting um, because 
as I said, that because time time is money, we all hear it, but it's like the to how do you, so how do you have the confidence then to to just say uh, well okay logistically how do you fund that how how do you finance that um i mean i should actually give a nod to another company that i work with which was ridiculousness and i worked with them for 12 years and they always created over a really long period of time and they kind of taught me to trust in that if you trust an artist to do it in the way they need to the results are really great so it kind of that empowered that pushed me on and empowered me to be like let's take the time to do this but in terms of, sorry what was the question um how can you how can you fund it how, uh, how yeah it's a jigsaw puzzle um and it's challenging at first and then it becomes easier and now it's getting challenging again um really key for 1927 have been international co-commissioning international co-production um so there are more venues overseas that were putting support into our work um, than ironically they were here in the same way that we, we learned how to make big shows and put shows on big stages overseas before anyone in the UK trusted us to do it here, which is kind of bonkers. Um, but actually it meant that we were able to persuade people to commission work and co-produce co work, but also really importantly to commit to presenting it and actually because we could gamble on the committing to present it we were able to ask the Arts Council from the offset for big chunks of money um, and again using that thing of going we're making shows with legs look at what we've done already trust in us and it was blind it was kind of a blind run at a big ask but we just thought if we don't start now we'll get trapped in that £15,000 model and you know that it which just doesn't really support the development of shows with legs and artists and companies and also really importantly like none of us are from trust funds or rich backgrounds like we have to be able to earn a living and you know if it's going to take six months to make something then you have to spell out what it costs but also the team's tiny and I think that's what's really key we're not bringing in like external directors or external designers or external xyz with that creative team I described is the creative team and there's one or two other collaborators that we've worked with um so actually it means that we're quite economic with our use of money and resource um that we're quite yeah we're quite i don't want to say we're tight but we're clever with how we use money and how we make it stretch further i think that's because you totally understand the process and you sort of honed it over different show i mean correct me if i'm wrong but it's, it's that isn't it you but also like you are relentless and you're so resilient with how you've had to i don't know do you think it's realistic for so working in talent development, a lot of the time it's having conversations with an artist in the company going, I want to make this piece of work. How do I do it? And I've got no money and not a lot of experience or something, or I've got a couple of grants from the Arts Council and now I'm at that point where do I do this or do that? And I hate constantly saying, well, you could go for another under 15 or you could sort of like, let's, and it's trying to present different models. And there are companies out there. I mean, 1927 are one of the main ones. I always refer to paper birds and what they do with their sort of educational arm and things, but they're not the norm. And I don't know, do you think it's realistic for companies to try and create a model like yours in the current climate? Probably not. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think though there's something about being brave and not compromising and actually being a bit experimental. I mean, we were, we were, we are, we're winging it all the time. Um, and we're like, okay, let's try that. Let's, happens um 
but also being a bit clever. I mean, like if I'm honest, like our second show, the animals and children took to the streets. Our first show was on tour to Australia for a week, which was mad. And I just thought, well, maybe I'll ask one of the other Australian venues that we toured to last year, whether they'd give us a residency to work on the new show. Um, because, you know, on the basis going, it would be irresponsible to fly to the other side of the world to just do a week of touring. But it's the Perth Festival, we can't turn it down. And it's significant amount of money that would mean that it would pay a part of our creation process on the new show for X amount of weeks. But really importantly, the reason I asked that other venue to host us for residency is because I wanted that other venue then to commit to the next show, which they then did. So like, I didn't say that to them, but that's what I was thinking in my mind. And then when I kind of caught up with them that summer in Edinburgh and said, oh, what's you, what, do you, what do you think? And they were like, great, we'd love to commission it. And I was like, great, that worked. So there's a little bit of clever, I don't want to say manipulation, but clever kind of thinking outside the box that we can all do to piece together the jigsaw puzzles that will sow the seed to enable something to be created. It's strategy, isn't it? It's a yeah, but kind of, but also doing it with people that you trust. Um, like that other venue, I kind of trusted. Um, and the people there, I really trusted. Um, but I also knew that they were up for being, doing things a bit differently as well. One, one question I wanted to ask, just for my own interest, is how, how do you think about making work in terms of being brave, like brave decisions? And, and when does a brave decision become too brave in the rehearsal room? Like, how do you have that conversation? Um, there's a, a someone that we know said to us really early on in our development journey um, said don't when we were making our second show said don't throw the baby out with bathwater um, which is like to remember which we've always taken us to remember what you do and you do well and if you're going to go in a massive direction test it determine whether it's the right thing to do and don't just do it because other people think you should. Um, I think also the interesting thing is we, it goes back to taking time to make a show happen, um, is that we have a process where, you know, we're in it at the moment where we've got a new show that lands in 20, the end of 2022, and we're already well into the creative journey. So there's so much research and development between the creative team that happens early on in the process. And then there's a hell of a lot of, we test everything in front of an audience. Um, so we stand things up in the production journey and go, does this work? Um, and that isn't even necessarily asking people to give us their feedback. You know, when you share something with an audience, let it breathe, whether it is or isn't working. So sometimes when we're thinking about ideas, will it or won't work, we'll know when we get an audience in. Um, so yeah, we factor in, sharing moments and production weeks that are shared with audiences and I think that's how we navigate through it. That's really cool and could we talk about what you're doing now what how you're changing how you work now? Well not hugely actually um, because we, we're, we're, we're a company that are based in two places so we have like three quarters, three quarters of the team, half our team, let's just say half the team live in Margates and we are creative studios in Margates uh, in Kent on the kind of southeast coast um, in Thanet, um, the hell of Kent. That's why Kent is in tier three at this moment in time. 
and hates Bannock. Um, uh, and the rest of the team are in London um, and some of our other collaborators are based all over the country. Um, so we've always had processes, we've, over the last three years, we've been developing a process of how we create in two places. And so, you know, the switch to doing things over Zoom or whatever is something we've been trialing for the past three years, four years anyway. Um, so we've actually found this year quite straightforward and easy to focus on the creation of new work, um, but only because we're at the early stage of that year-long research and development journey. Um, does that answer your question? Or did you need yeah. something else? Uh, how are you... I know there's a big thing at the moment about theatre has stopped mm. and, um, <laughs> and because th because theatre buildings have closed. So I'm, I'm wondering whether... Oh, we have not stopped. We haven't stopped. As, as uh, we were joking in earlier where we went, everyone else stopped and then we went into overdrive. Um, where we were like, okay, well, we can't tour that show. Right, well, let's let's turn it into a radio. Let's turn it into an audio project. Oh, no, let's turn the audio project into a radio show. Oh, let's put the radio show on BBC Radio 3. Okay, let's make that. Let's run at it. And then, oh, let's do an experiment with what that can be and how that can exist in a different way. And then let's do some outdoor work with children in a park oh and let's create some workshops and oh let's redirect the the opera we made set eight years ago to be covid safe so let's pull off the opera singers put on dancers work remotely with our partners in germany and let's keep commissioning artists let's like all the creative engagement work we were planning to do in schools let's change that and work with different group participatory groups let's do public call outs like We've just been in overdrive, um, making, 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 like really thinking about how we create, how we craft, how we commission people who had like had their education curtailed to illustrate some film and animate some films that we were kind of planning to make in with part through participation with young people that we couldn't do because we couldn't go into schools, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, we've gone in, it feels like we've gone into massive overdrive. And we've also kind of really felt um the blanket of security that comes with being an NPO, like, and the weight of responsibility that goes with that and the necessity to therefore like extend an offer of help and support, be that initially with the artists we were working with um, and our collaborators, but also then to others. So like, like I said, people who've had their education curtailed, who didn't manage to do their last uh, exhibition and they were doing kind of, they weren't planning to go to university and they've lost their chance to do a, an exhibition so we've commissioned them to create an animation for us instead so then they've got something digital that they can create um, but also that they're being paid um yeah it's been a mad year and we're a bit exhausted and i think you know i think there are so many companies in particular and artists that have just been making non-stop and commissioning and collaborating and supporting and nurturing and um yeah it's kind of a little bit frustrating sometimes that that work is not being given the visibility or recognition that it needs and I say that partly because we've been able to drive forwards because we have the blanket of funding but also because we had money that we could relocate from other activity but this year we've done all of that without any income coming in other than our funding and what we had set aside so there's a big drought or tsunami whichever way you want to look at it ahead um, in terms of like how the hell we get productions made, how we tour work, how we continue to deliver stuff next year and beyond. Um, and I feel like the venues have really 
been hard hit this year, but I think artists and obviously freelancers have been, and I say that as somebody who is freelance, we have a slightly wonky model as a company where we're all uh, mostly freelance anyway. So I think there is a big challenge ahead about how art gets made um, and how those that have kind of just about found a way of surviving this year continue forward. Who do you think is sort of making or like trying to problem solve that challenge? Because that's what scares me a bit. It's going, everybody is affected by this, but in different ways, but it's the funded organisations who are often loudest because they've got that um, the resources and the, the reputation to sort of be heard more. Um, and, I'm, and yeah, I'm just wondering, like, in terms of things like the freelance task force and things, but also just the networks that you're a part of. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, I think the freelance task force and freelance make theatre work have done amazing stuff. And there's loads of other networks have kind of that have come together, which is really, I find it is brilliant in terms of kind of giving visibility to the kind of the extraordinary amount of, I, it's a weird one, actually, because I, I, obviously we are free people are freelance and they're self-employed but I, I prefer the word almost self-employed than freelance because I'm like there are a lot of people particularly in the territory that we work in that regularly collaborate with just two or three companies um and so they have a kind of they're autonomous in terms of where they go and I think there I think there is a lot of uh shouting uh, which is important and there is there is there is some attention being paid um but I do think that unfortunately there are those with louder voices and more higher profiles that get paid more attention to and I think those who can buildings get paid more attention to um what I would say is I you know what's really been great this year is kind of connecting with loads of other companies in a way that I don't think I ever have um and partly that comes from maybe being an NPO for the last couple of years that we're suddenly in this group of like oh you're funded we're funded let's have a let's let's get together all the touring companies or it really exciting me there's a group of companies that are artists consider themselves artist-led mpos that have been um having like regular meetings and talking about process and what we're doing and what our needs are and very much thinking about and representing not just ourselves but beyond so those of our peers that were because a lot of us are working at the kind of edges more of art form and experience and performance and you know, maybe a much newer to the national portfolio or really old school have been in the national portfolio for a long time, but collaborate regularly with those outside it. So I think we've all found it important to demand conversations with funders and DCMS and to push at that. And so there is conversations happening in terms of what are the support structures going forward and a real kind of push towards the need for things like production recovery and support, because all of the focus has been on everything that's stopped or been closed and very little about what comes next and how do we equitably now ensure that like a variety of voices and process and uh, types of work is being experienced in different places. How has, uh, how has NPA status changed other than the finances? How has it changed the way you make the artistic work or has it? Um, it hasn't changed at all how we make work. Um, and it wouldn't um it's one thing we've been really clear about what it has done is is it's grown the range of work we do um it's an when i say it's grown the range of work we do it's given us an injection of resource to lay the seeds of new activities that we weren't previously doing um partly and that's partly because you know you're the custodian of 
public money. So you kind of have to think about that. We're in a really weird position where we're based, like I said, in London and Kent. So we are funded as a Southeast company. Um, and there's only 11 national portfolio organisations in the county of Kent. So there's over 850 in the whole country and 11 of them live in Kent, um, which is pretty extraordinary given it's the Southeast and everyone talks about the Southeast having so much money and resource. Um, and there's 11 companies in Kent that are funded. And when I say companies, I mean across every art form. We're also the only theatre NPO in the county of Kent. So there's quite a weight of responsibility that goes with that. Um, so what it has enabled us to do is to, to, um, to grow our team a little bit. So we have a part-time general manager now, which is great. Um, it means I'm not doing bookkeeping all the time and other things like that that get in the way on a Sunday morning. Um, uh, and it means that we've been able to introduce more talent development activities and more creative engagement and creative learning work and um, to experiment with more digital practice, which in our world is interconnected with our talent development and creative learning. So it's about using, kind of being able to deliver a whole load of collaborative co-creation projects with young people, which manifest themselves in the creation of uh, animations usually that get exhibited digitally or physically. Um, so yes, it's opened up the possibility for you we create with, but it also has added a sense of responsibility of needing to fight the recognition of performance makers, particularly in the corner of England that is Kent. That's that's great, really fascinating. Because I think some people would um, potentially hesitate to go towards MPO because of a potential pigeonholing or, um, or, or, or any kind of red tape that it might come with. But um, that's really interesting how, how it hasn't changed. Yeah, I mean, we did it. We did apply. We this we, we applied twice and we got it the second time. Right. Oh, I think we've talked about kind of what you're doing at the moment. I think we potentially have neglected the, uh, stuff at the beginning. Um, maybe we can encompass it with this next question. It's kind of what is your advice for young or emerging producers who want to get into producing? What and this is to both of you. Kind of what. What, what should they be doing to develop themselves um, in kind of in general and what should they be doing now in kind of COVID times? My usual advice is to be as much work as possible um, and you can still do that at the moment obviously there is work out there and actually if anything it's more exciting because you are seeing these companies adapt and um, develop into sort of keep being creative and keep putting stuff out there um, and I suppose like I think I learned this from Joe and watching other um, producers and sort of companies but just don't ever be afraid to ask and it is as simple as if you don't ask you don't get um, it's yeah I think it, you know the worst that can happen is someone says no and you just sort of go all right I'll ask someone else but I think I'm definitely I've done this before where there's that you know the, the first time somebody says they'll give you a commission or they'll give you a fee or they'll give you a you know a guarantee over a box office split and you sort of suddenly think you owe this entire you owe everything to this company because you're so lucky to have a little bit of stability that actually you still own that work it is your it is your project and you should never um 
feel like you have to change it for that commission if it means if not taking that means it's going to take you an extra 18 months to do it kind of so be it um don't ever yeah sort of um make the work suffer for that that stability i guess which is quite like joe was saying earlier it's, it's kind of counterproductive in some ways but hopefully you, you'll come off better for it because you'll be staying true to the to the artist and the work that you're trying to do and Jo, what, what should young emerging producers be doing? Don't stress, like don't rush. There's no, like, you'll probably end up doing this for 70 years. <laughs> like genuinely, there's no rush. Um, take your time. Uh, if you have to go and work in a supermarket for five years, that's okay, that's cool, that's fine. Um, and know what, learn to listen to what you like like go and see loads of work work out what gets you going you know that i talked about that moment earlier where sitting in the royal court literary office and hearing a rehearsal downstairs that's um frantic assembly and it was really loud music and i was just like this is what i want i want to be in that world of like aesthetic i, I understood that it was a visual aesthetic that i was interested in or kind of like physical visceral kind of experience in theater and listening to what you want you like like let the art lead lead um and don't yeah take your time but also i think there is something around you know you can work in get your foot in the door however you can and you can gradually you will gradually in time look back and realize you've ended up where you want to be and you may not have known where that was um so there's no rush take your time and you know you don't have to i learned to be a producer through being an administrator and an organizer and all of that side of things so you know i sometimes think some of the best producers come from administration and production routes and i think those two things and if you have an and always that's the other thing is really get to understand production like those jobs in front of house those jobs as dressers backstage they 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 were the two things that helped me understand how to be a producer if i'm honest sitting in the same show night after night or backstage and seeing physically how shows come together being in technical rehearsals sending actors on stage with broken shoes i've just glued them together when i was working at the stephen james in, in scarborough like as a student like those things help you learn the craft of producing much more than learning how to go and sit in a rehearsal room and give feedback because you're making a production yes or a piece of art you know yeah that's mega important, isn't it? Because you're you need to. I think one of the things that not quite set me aside, but I was always quite interested in how a production was made from a technical point of view. And I cannot tell you how useful that. And I'm not an expert, but just that basic understanding has been so incredibly helpful from everything. Because you're essentially hiring these people, you are managing and in charge of this team. And if you don't really understand what everybody does, you're not the best manager maybe it's sort of that it's going you need to kind of un have your head around every part of that production and if you don't it will become quite obvious quite quickly and if you do you also won't be caught out there's lots of times when someone's tried to fob me off with something I'm like okay <laughs> but there's also times when they said something and I've sort of gone I've no idea if that's the case or not but that's where you ask that's where you ring up Joe Crowell and you go uh can I just and um, I think, yeah, get yourself a mentor or a friend who knows what they're talking about. That's definitely a piece of advice I would put forward. Yeah, and actually in that, 
grow your peer network is one of the most important things it will keep you sane <laughs> um uh yeah it's really important every step of the way have build a group of friends and also kind of when i say peer network i genuinely think i mean peer network as well like people that you kind of grow and evolve with um i find it amazing that actually when lockdown first started there were a bunch of producers that we got together and did like a producers retreat 10 years ago um and one of the first what emergency whatsapp groups that got set up was that group of people being like how's everyone doing and some of us haven't seen each other for a long time on the back of that then what do you both think are the um are really important qualities that a producer needs to have i think i always say common sense so much of what producing is is common sense um and it's communication it's being able to talk to different people doing different jobs from different backgrounds with different understandings different sort of um you know a stage manager will have a completely different idea of what's the most important thing of a production than your um, you know, costume designer will, and it's sort of being able to understand those different like perspectives and things. Um, everything else, I sort of feel like you can pick up along the way. So much of what I now class as my skill set, I learned on the job. Um, mm. And you know, yes, I was winging it most of the time, and still am. Like even with what we're doing, Alex, we sort of shift to the more digital side of Riptide. I've said to you time and time again. I've no idea what I'm talking about. I've no idea. I can't predict the trends anymore. But we're honest and transparent about that, and we've sort of figured it out together. And it's so yeah. But I guess that comes with confidence and experience of knowing who you are and and where you fit within your your sort of production or industry. But yeah, I do think a lot of it is common sense and just organisation skills. What about you, Joe? What I mean, I totally agree with all of that. I'm, yeah, so much of it is about being pragmatic, um, but maybe also being brave and adventurous. Um, dare I say it? This is a contradiction. I'm going to say be uncompromising, but also compromising. Um, and I don't know this is a quality, but I think it's really important is the ability to develop, to develop the ability to be intuitive and to listen to your gut. Like really importantly, listen to your gut. I mean, the amount of times we found ourselves in this and went oh no it's not working and we're like we knew it wasn't we, we knew from the beginning like we all with that when you've got that niggle inside listen to it because you probably do know what you're doing um yeah i mean i think it's also so much about who you collaborate with it's like find the people find your partners in crime um if you find your partners in crime it's okay to experiment and yeah. break yeah that's really yeah really interesting um has there been a favorite failure of yours in 1920s has there, has there been something we we always hit see the kind of success stories and the amazing productions and the amazing international tours has there been something that maybe people don't know about or maybe a show that went wrong or or a moment um, well, actually, we've had an interesting one this year that we realised with something. Um, sorry, I've got a train going by, which means I lose signal. Um, the, I guess, you know, there have been moments when things haven't quite worked out the way we wanted them to, but because we've taken time, it's been okay. Um, but in taking the time and in trusting each other, I guess we've made some decisions that some people might question. So we had a show that we were 
creating for the Royal Opera House. Um, Royal Opera House and Edinburgh International Festival and Spoleto Festival and the Holland Festival. And we spent two years developing it with a composer and we pulled the plug about a year before it should have been made um, because we realised it wasn't quite working. Um, and we were co-creating it with this composer and he agreed with us that actually yeah, it's not quite working. And so we all then went to those partners and said, um, it's not, we're not gonna do this. And given that the Royal Opera House had approached us originally, that was quite a big, big deal to step away from what could have been a really huge show. And we were also, it's potentially being made for Hull City of Culture. So that was a few years ago, but um, we just realized it wasn't, there was no love in it. And we decided that if we were gonna fail with something we made, we needed to fail with something we loved rather than fail with something we really didn't like the creation process on. Um, so we pulled the plug on it. And I think, you know, no one really knows that. Those part, interestingly, all of their partners being a bit like, what? Um, they, I think they were quite surprised, but actually I th think they found it really refreshing that we decided to pull it rather than continue with something that creatively would have compromised what we were making. And, and it actually meant that we've continued to work with most of partners ever since. Um, so I think there is something interesting about that, about if you're going to fail, do it with something you love. It doesn't matter if it fails then. If you're failing with something you know is broken, then it's maybe time to nip it in the bud. But the really interesting thing, just a slight aside of that, is that we put the show, we cancelled it, pulled it away. Um, and then this year we did a little experiment on a project and suddenly that old show we were working on came back into our minds. And so we've sort of realised that maybe things don't always go away. So it might still come back one day, not as an opera, but as something else. I think it's just such, such a brave decision to pull it. Um, I mean, some people would say it was mad. Yeah. And it was before we were an MPO, so we really did need that big show and that resource. Yeah. So it was it was a big deal. Um, wow. Yeah. Okay, last question. Last question. Um, and this is not necessarily theatre related, it's more of you as a, um, you guys as a person. Um, in the last five years, what new belief behavior or habit has most improved your life do you think i think something that happens an awful lot especially with freelance self-employed independent artists and companies is that balance between work and social life doesn't exist um and i've lost friends partners jobs because I can't find that balance and part of me doesn't want to because it's the reason I got into this industry and there's so much overlap and crossover that you know it doesn't exist I think something I started doing as I got to like my late 20s early 30s of going you can't keep this up the amount of energy and stress and it's not always bad energy and stress but it is exhausting but I think what I've managed to do in the last probably not quite five, maybe more like three, is in, in set, have a little bit of balance and ensure I inject that in. And it's just little things like making sure I do take some holiday and that holiday doesn't involve checking my emails. And um, it, it's hard and I'm still not the best at it. And I think there is an issue in our industry where it's not 
you're kind of expecting them to take a lunch break. You're kind of expecting them to have a holiday. You're expected to always be able to answer your phone and, and your emails, especially when you're working on more than one job. Um, but it's not healthy. Um, so, yeah, I think that's something that I've tried to do. And I've had, I've been lucky where I've had some great managers who sort of encourage that. And I'm, I've had some awful managers who don't understand it at all and some awful sort of like creative club collaborators who don't get it. But it's something which I now am better at being vocal about, I guess. What about you, Jo? Um, I guess at some point I started to say no to things, which is quite an important thing, realising no don't have the time and capacity so don't do that um and actually i mean i think everything that rosie's just said i agree with um and i think sometimes like i mean i am guilty of doing way too many things all the time um but i'm also really good at just going i'm not going to do that i'm going to shut my computer and walk away or i'm going to go and see that thing i'm going to go and see my friends or i'm going to go and see my family and having that time out and keeping that balance um and the contradiction around that sometimes is there's a perception that you're not because you're not around, but that might just be because you've gone off on tour or whatever, and that just means that you're not in one base or one place all the time. Um, but yeah, making sure that separation is is absolutely essential. Um, and actually, really importantly, I think I was just thinking about what have I done. Some a really important thing that I've done in the last five years is um, because we work internationally. I've always worked with companies working internationally. Is, about eight years ago, I joined IETM, um, which is an international network of performing arts. And until this year, every two, twice a year, I've gone to an IETM meeting, which is like a four day meeting in a different city somewhere in Europe. Um, and actually, everyone always says, well, what do you get out of it? What, what, how much work do you get out of it? And I'm like, I don't really get work out of it. What I do get is a bit of time out and a bit of reflection time, a bit of professional development and some social time with some professional friends who've now become very dear, close friends. So I think there's something about taking the time out, but also investing in your own personal development, which I think producers don't do enough. Mm. Um, that's really important. And working out how you do that. And for me, it is about hanging out and having a glass of wine with some really good producers from Paris or Belfast or somewhere in Azerbaijan you know it, it that that is what feeds me so working out what feeds you professionally and so personally and making time for both are really important yeah 100% I'd agree with that definitely um, amazing mm. well thank you so much both of you for for your time being generous with it um that was super interesting I feel like we covered a lot from early career to you know to later stuff so thank you so much and um all the best with your future up and coming shows uh, joe where can people find you and 1927 what's how, how can we find out more about you uh you can look on our website where we update things although at the moment things keep changing we think we've got shows on and then suddenly it gets cancelled so you know uh yeah so uh 19-27.co.uk follow us on twitter 19 and instagram and facebook which is 1927 productions or 1927 theater it's interchangeable uh not 1927 the australian band there's someone else interesting <laughs> thank you so much um to both of you and yeah all the best great thank you